Today we'll be reading from Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through, the, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here at Trailhead. Uh, thanks for joining us online. Um, I feel like I'm there. We go. Uh, hey, happy Valentine's Day, right? Happy Valentine's Day or happy non-Valentine's Day, depending on how you approach the day. There you go. It is a uh, great day for all of y'all, right? Um, wherever you happen to be in regard to your romantic relationships, I hope today is a good day and that you're able to celebrate. They say that opposites attract. And I think that's basically true, right? We, we, we aren't looking when we're looking for either a romantic partner or, or a friend um, or people to hang out with. We're not looking for carbon copies of ourselves. As much as we like ourselves, we get a little bored with ourselves. And um, so in romance and friendship and life, we tend to be drawn to others who are different in ways that complement us, right? In ways that that encourage us or challenge us or help us to to grow, right? That is the excitement, but that is also the exhaustion of relationships. What is exciting often becomes exhausting when other people's differences push on us in ways we don't want to be pushed. When when it forces us to to move into things that we don't want to move into, conversations we don't want to have, things we don't want to see, things that are challenging uh, to us that make us either feel shame or defensive or, you know, when those differences stop complementing and start competing, uh, they can move from being exciting to exhausting. And this is true in all relationships. It is even true in the church because the church, remember, is not a building. The church, the ecclesia, is the called out people of God. It is the network of relationships created by believers who are the body of Christ under the head who is Christ. Uh, we have such a hard time loving people that are different from us because it challenges us. And that's especially true in our country right now. In our country right now, we are ideologically and politically divided in, um, it's always true, but it's really just acrimonious right now. I mean, it is just bitter and, um, and difficult. Um, and so this morning, what I want us to do is dig in a little bit. Uh, I think our passage requires us to, honestly, but it's also an invitation to recognize that as we're considering what's wrong with our country, we are not being asked what's wrong with them. We're being asked what's wrong with us. That the conflict that is around us isn't their fault. It is often rooted in my fault. It is not a political problem and it's not an ideological problem. Those are the, the, the grounds on which the battles take place, but that's really not the issue. 
It's not a political issue. It's not an ideological issue. It's a spiritual issue. Because we uh, are often more anchored to our idols than we are to our Savior. And as it has been famously said, we need to be in the business of killing our idols or our idols will be in the business of killing us. And right now, we're getting whooped. It's time for us to take the axe to our political and ideological idols. It's time for us to repent of our worldliness and recenter our hope on the glory of God. That's where we're going this morning. Y'all's ready? This is what's happening. All right. Last week, we examined the structure of the beginning of this chapter, Romans 5, 1 and 2. It is an incredible transition in this letter, right? He begins by saying, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, right? We saw that, that Paul begins with a reference back to this, this, what he's already been teaching so intensely, this idea of double imputation. That, that my sin was imputed to Christ on the cross, and his righteousness, his act of obedience was imputed to me in the resurrection. Right? Paul then goes on and says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God because my sin was imputed to God. I'm no longer in enmity with God. I no longer stand opposed to God. I, I no longer am guilty of cosmic treason and blasphemy before my God. I stand having been forgiven because Christ took the penalty of my sin. He was my substitute. On the cross, my sin was imputed to him. Verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. My sin was imputed to him, but his righteousness was imputed to me. And because it was, I now stand in grace. I'm not only cleansed of what I did wrong, I stand in the full record of what he did right. I not only stand purged and cleansed and forgiven with my shame and my guilt removed, I stand with the full active righteousness of Christ covering me. So therefore, I stand in the presence of God, a remarkable statement. I stand in grace. I stand in his ever-flowing, never-ceasing approval and affection. He loves me as much as he loves his son. When he looks at me, his heart delights in me just like it delights in his son because I am covered in the very active righteousness and obedience of his son. And because of all this, I now rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The end of verse 2. Right? I rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We took a look last week at that word rejoice, the Greek word kahalmai, um, and talked about how uh, kahalmai is this, this rich word that means, and sometimes it's translated rejoice, sometimes it's translated boast. So depending on what version of the Bible you're reading, you'll generally see one of those. It, it has a, um, all words have a circle of meaning. This, this means to rejoice or to boast or to glory in, right? Um, because. Christ died for me and rose for me. Because I am justified by faith, my kahalmai is freed once again to be centered where it should be centered, right? My, my kahalmai is set true, right? Your, your kahalmai, your joy, your boast, your glory, points you to what you really value. It shows you what you think is the true north in your life. 
right? If your kahalma is like a compass, the, the needle points you to your true north, and your true north is where you think you're going to find the fullness of life. Your true north is, is where you think you're going to find blessing and, and joy and security and significance and comfort, right? And, 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 and your needle is not right, <laughs> right? Our needle is not right. Because we've rebelled against God, it has, it has knocked off kilter our sense of what's going to bring us the fullness of life. We chase things that, instead of giving us the fullness of life, actually rob us of life. Instead of giving us rest, leave us more exhausted than when we got there. Instead of giving us freedom, actually lead us into bondage. And instead of giving us glory, actually cover us in shame. Why? Because our kahalmai is off. Right? Our true north has been, has been disrupted by our rebellion against God because Christ is my peace. And because I am covered in the righteousness of Christ, I once again can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It, it, it resets the, uh, the needle of my heart, the true north, right? So when you think about your kahalmai, just think about what, what has the power to unleash joy in you, right? What has the power to give you confidence and a feeling of strength? What, what fills your sail and gives you a sense of energy? What lifts your head when you're discouraged? You follow those questions and you'll find your kahalmai. You'll find your glory. You'll find your boast. You'll find your, your joy, right? Another way of discovering it is to ask the simple question, what has the power to devastate you? What, if, if you don't get it, has the power to make you feel exposed and weak and, and shame? What, if, if I don't get it, may even make me feel like life isn't necessarily worth living. Your kahalmai. It's the true north to which you have oriented your life that you believe is going to lead you into the fullness of life, that is going to give you the blessing of life, that is going to ultimately make life worth living. It is the compass of your heart that points you to what you truly value. The work of Jesus to redeem us gave us peace with God and it gives us a standing of grace. And as a result, it resets. It has the power to reset the compass of our hearts so that the needle points to the glory of God and not the temporary passing glory of man. It has the power to reorient the, the loves of our hearts, to reset our hearts to their original settings, not, not our original settings because We've never had the settings right. We were born with the wrong settings. I'm talking about humanity's original settings, like our first parents' original settings before they rebelled against God, right? This has the power to, to reset humanity so that our true north points to the glory of God so that, so that we find our significance and our security and our comfort and our approval in God's love for us, in his provision for us, in his protection of us, in his approval of us. The work of Christ resets our kahalmai from the glory of the kingdom of man to the glory of the kingdom of God. Now, let me remind you, word glory. Um, there are so many words that we 
we tend to to just kind of pass over in a shallow way and we don't really think about what they mean. The word glory doesn't mean brightness. That's how a lot of people think of glory, something that glows. It doesn't, it doesn't mean moral perfection. It doesn't mean holiness. I'm, I'm not saying that glory doesn't have elements of those things, right? Maybe you will be bright. Hmm? That'd be cool, right? Will you be morally perfect? Absolutely. As a follower of Christ, you will be conformed to the image of Christ. You will be made morally perfect. You will be holy. You've already been declared holy and you will be made holy. Those are all true things, but that's not glory. Glory is honor. Glory is the honor associated with what is excellent and magnificent. And the glory of God is not a passive gift we receive. It is an active calling on our lives. Right? The righteousness of Christ is a passive gift we receive. We don't do anything to earn it. We can't do anything to lose it. I, I, I am covered in it whether or not I am actively running toward it or running away from it. Right? That's the beauty of the grace of God. He will conform me to the image of my son. It's not my job to conform myself to his image. He will do it. It's, it, is, it is something that's been declared over me and it will become my future reality and progressively my reality now because the spirit of God's at work in me to conform me to the image of Jesus. Right? That's all true. When we're talking about the glory of God, we're not talking about something that passively covers you. We're talking about something you need to actively pursue. It is not a crown on your head. It is your human job description. And it is in fulfilling the human job description that you actually start bearing the crown of honor on your head. We now have the hope of having the compass of our hearts reset so that the needle points to our true north and we will stop rebelling against God and start working with God. We'll stop aligning ourselves with the values of the kingdom of man and start actually living out the values of the kingdom of God. So what do we mean when we talk about having our hopes set on the glory of God? Right? What, what are we hoping for? What does that look like? Right? That just sounds like really, really nice religious talk. Um, and, and we got to be careful anytime something's like, that sounds really cool, but I'm not quite sure what it means. We need to dig into that, right? We need to ask, what does that mean? What does that look like, right? So what we're talking about is experiencing the glory of God, right? In a way that is rooted in exercising our power in accordance with his dominion. You're like, Steve, that doesn't help. All right, let me, let me dig in. All right, to be crowned with God's glory is to exercise the dominion of his kingdom. To be crowned with God's glory is to use our power in the exercise of the dominion of his kingdom. Let me show you some verses from Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is a great psalm that, that David is reflecting on the creational intent of God. Right, Genesis 1 and 2, when God created mankind in his own image, David has this moment where he has this kind of existential out-of-body experience. And I think it's profound because I've, I can relate to it, right? He says this, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? He has this moment of, of I don't know, existential smallness, Right? I remember the first time I read this um, because I've had a similar moment, right? I remember when I was like, I don't know, 13. 
uh, Northern California, we were out at the gravel pits. That's where the parties were. And I remember um, as a kid scrambling up one of the huge piles of gravel uh, out in the middle of the night out in this gravel pit. And I remember standing, and I'm like, I don't know, 20, 30 feet above, you know, the party going on down below me. And I'm standing there and I suddenly realize I am just like, the sky is alive with the stars. You know what I'm saying? Like Northern California, it's all ocean, redwoods, pine trees, and sky. I mean, it's just ridiculously beautiful. And in that moment, as I looked up at the sky, holding my beer as a 13-year-old kid, I'm like, I'm really small. Like, there's just this overwhelming sense. Why do I exist? Why am I here? But in that moment, it was more than just a feeling of smallness. What was making me feel small was this overwhelming bigness of beauty. I would call it one of my God moments before I came to know God. It was one of those moments before I became a Christian that it just was was a weight, a, 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 what C.S. Lewis called numinousness, this sense of weightiness that just came down and just kind of almost crushed me, the sense that there is an overwhelming personal beauty in the universe that's so big and so glorious and so overwhelming. And for some reason, he knows me. And for some reason, he cares about me. I don't know what that means out at this moment. I don't, but David has this moment. He's like, I, I'm just out underneath the stars and this weightiness just comes upon me and I'm left with this question. What is man that you are mindful of him? Why do you care about us? Why? We're so small. We're so frail. We're, we're, we're just mud people. Right? Why would you care? He goes on in verses 3 through 6. Yet, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Um, that, that's not saying that, that that's actually exalting, right? What he's saying, the, the, the Hebrew here is Elohim. It, it could be a name for God. That Elohim does speak of God often, that, that, that noun. And so it could be that he's saying, you have made him a little lower than God, right? You've just made us in your image, but a little lower than you. Or it could be a reference to the angelic beings, which is how our translators took it. That's why they, they translated it heavenly beings. Either way, what David is saying is you put us in a position of tremendous in, in, in honor. Ridiculous honor. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You didn't just create us. You created us in your own image. You didn't just make us. You, you, you empowered us. You crowned us with glory and honor. What does that mean? You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. We were created to be the stewards of all creation. Created in the image of God to bear that image. Not to look like God, but to act like God. To exercise our authority, our power for the good of creation. To preserve what had been entrusted to us and continue the creative work of God in building good. That we might all enter into the flourishing and the fullness of life together. 
That the world might flourish as we image God to creation and to one another. Taking this incredible gift that God gave us, not just the physical elements of the world, but the gift of human culture, of science and art and beauty, and and, and protecting what had been entrusted to us and, and continuing to push out and discover more of it. Not in competition with one another, but in community with one another. Not to destroy one another, but to exalt one another, that we might build together what we could never have on our own. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. So what I want you to see is David makes a very clear connection. To be crowned with glory and honor is tied to being entrusted with power. To being, to being, being crowned with glory and honor is tied to our exercise of the dominion that has been entrusted to us as those created in the image of God. We are to exercise our power in line with the responsibility of our stewardship. We should exercise the dominion that has been entrusted to us as those who were created in the image of God. This is ridiculously challenging. And in fact, I would say impossible outside of the grace of God. Because our default wiring since our rebellion against God is to be worldly. Our default wiring is to find the fullness of life apart from the God who gives that fullness. To not live in humble dependence on God, but to compete with God. To mark the boundaries of our own glory, to establish our own security, to, to, to pursue our own pleasure. Right? We want to be little gods. We don't want to be like God. That is the, the, the restless, sinful impulse of the rebellious human heart. And because of that worldliness, we exercise our dominion, but we exercise that dominion in opposition to God, not in humble dependence to God. We all do it. We are all worldly. This is not some other person's problem. It's my problem. This is the fallen human problem. We use our power, not for the fullness and flourishing of life, not for the glory and honor of God, but to keep what I've got and get more. The driving motivation of worldliness is greed. To keep what I've got, And get more. Why? Because I am under the insane delusion that somehow, if I can keep what I have and get more, that path will eventually lead me to the fullness and flourishing of life. If I can keep what I have and get more fame, if I can keep what I have and get more material comfort, if I can keep what I have and get more affection, if I can keep what I have and get more political influence, if I can keep what I have and get more, then eventually I will arrive at the place my soul desperately desires to be. A place of security, a place of significance, a place of comfort, a place where I am approved and loved. And what I end up doing is I try to establish a competing glory with God and I seek to be crowned with the glory of man. It is deceptive significance, security, comfort, and approval. It lives on the praise of man. 
It lives in the number of likes I get on Facebook or the follows that I get on Twitter or the number of people who are willing to send me their money or, or the number of sponsors I get that are willing to approve of my... I, I live for the praise of man because I'm continually comparing myself to others. And as long as I come out ahead of somebody, I'm at least more secure, more significant, more comfortable, or more approved than them. It's a deceptive promise because it never delivers what it promises. Now that, that is the hope that is set in the glory of man. But we now rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Instead of exercising our power in greed, we can now exercise our power in grace. We can exercise our power in line with our creational intent. We can exercise the dominion of the kingdom of God instead of the dominion of the kingdom of man. What does that look like? Honestly, at times it's going to look like death. You know why? Because the kingdom of heaven is often called by theologians the inverse kingdom. Because the values of the kingdom of heaven look like they're the exact opposite of the values of, of the kingdom of man, right? What man despises, God values. And what God values, man despises, right? We love gold. You know what God does with gold in the kingdom of heaven? He lines the streets with it. What we work so hard to hoard, we're going to walk on in the kingdom of God, right? He values generosity, not greed. When Jesus is at the the temple and he watches all these powerful men making offerings and offering up worship, he points out the one person nobody notices, the widow, and he says, do you see what she just did? And they're like, no. And he's like, she just dropped a mite in the box. Now, a mite was like a penny. He's like, she just gave all she had. What she has just done is weightier more glorious than anything else that's been done here today. What we are tempted to despise, he sees its glory. What, what we, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, we get all excited about fame and money, right? You'll have like this, I don't know, celebrity, this, this, this uh, athlete or celebrity who becomes a Christian, and you'll hear people say really foolish things like, oh my goodness, that's going to do so much good for the kingdom of God. As if God were just waiting for some celebrity to believe the gospel. And then things would suddenly take off. You know, more is done to actually change the world by an unknown, unseen nobody who acts in love than by all the celebrities and all the famous people on the face of the earth. God does not value what we value. It is the inverse kingdom. What we are tempted to despise is often the glory and the power of God. The driving impulse of the kingdom of man is is greed to keep and to get, and that causes us to value what we shouldn't value. That magnetic north controls the needle on my compass, where to go, and it defines what my goals in life should be and who I should consider my ally and who I should consider my enemy. My ally, of course, is anybody who helps me to keep and get. 
And my enemy, of course, is anybody who threatens my little kingdom of keeping and getting. You know, if we're honest, y'all, there's a fundamental question at the base of our heart. What fool gives up what they can keep? What fool doesn't get more of what they want? We believe this seductive lie. Can we, can we get there? This isn't a problem out there. It is a problem in here. You know who, you know what fool gives up what they, what they can keep? You, you know what fool doesn't get all that he can? Jesus. The one who laid down his life so that we could find ours. The one who gave everything up so that we could get what we could never earn and have what we could never claim. Jesus, the one who, who on the Sermon on the Mount, when he was explaining the values of his kingdom, looked at his followers and he said, y'all are Jewish living in Rome. Well, in Jerusalem, but under Roman dominion. And that means that in any given time, a Roman soldier can walk up to you and say, I commandeer your cloak. If they're cold, they can take your cloak. That, that was part of the legal structure. And he's like, look, if they take your cloak, give them your second. They can at any time walk up to you and say, you need to carry my gear for the next mile. That was one of the rules. Like, like they could commandeer you for a mile. So you're going to take my gear for a mile. If they ask you to go a mile, you go too. If they strike you on the cheek, you turn the other. So they can strike it too. The values of the kingdom of God seem insane when we are controlled by the thinking of the kingdom of man. The power of the kingdom of man fills us with a continual, restless greed for more. More affluence, more influence, more security, more approval, more comfort. But the power of the kingdom of God leads us to a continual, restless love of others. And if you're honest, some of you right now are like, Steve, you're insane. Yeah. If we do that, we'll lose everything, Steve. If we did that, what are you saying? We're just supposed to lay down and let people walk on us? We're just supposed to lay down our rights? We're just supposed to let people walk? What? That's insane. What good does that do? <laughs> it doesn't do any good in the kingdom of man. Yeah, it's not insane to the kingdom of God. It is insane in the kingdom of man. It is not insane to the kingdom of God. Let me ask you something, y'all. Let's just, can you point me to a single person? A single person who has achieved the fullness of life by exercising the power of the kingdom of man. Can you point me to a single person who has been able to keep what they got and got more? Can you point me to a single person 
who was able to overcome the power of death by exercising the dominion of death. It's an insane path, y'all. We take short-term success for long-term wisdom. We see somebody who seems to be ahead of where we are now, and we think, well, they have the fullness of life. Y'all, step back from the story far enough, and what you will see is that it's the same story told over and over and over of insane people thinking they can get where they can't go and ignoring all the failure that came in front of them. Yeah, the kingdom of God is the inverse kingdom. You know why? Because the kingdom of man is the insane kingdom. Insanity is doing what you've always done, thinking you're somehow going to get what you've never gotten. Feel a bumper sticker? The one with the most toys wins. The one who dies with the most toys still dies. The one who dies with the most fame. The one who dies with the most influence. The one who dies with the most political victories. The one who dies with... with, They still die. And guess what they don't get to take with them? Guess what doesn't last? Guess what does not take them into the fullness and flourishing of life? It does not deliver them where they crave to go. In the end, it betrays them. It leaves them exposed in their shame and in their weakness with all the deceptions of security and glory exposed for the weakness that it's always been. Yeah, the kingdom of God is the inverse kingdom because the kingdom of man is the insane kingdom. Y'all, we have been justified by faith through grace. Because Jesus died for me, my sin has been removed from me, and because he rose, his righteousness now covers me, and I now boast and rejoice in hope of the glory of God, the true north that leads me to the fullness and flourishing of life has been reset by the grace of God so that I can once again exercise the dominion that's been entrusted to me in, in a way that is in line with the values of the kingdom of God. I can act in accordance with love instead of greed. I can trust that the path of the cross leads to resurrection. That I don't, I don't get to the fullness and flourishing of life by denying the power of love. I get there by embodying it and living it and embracing it. All right. Foundation. Let's move on now and talk a little bit about how this is playing out in America today. There's a huge gulf. Huge gulf. There's always been a tension. There's always been a fault line. There's now a huge gulf between the left and the right in America, between progressives and conservatives. So much so that many of you have come to the point that you see anybody in the other camp as your enemy. Anybody who's a progressive is your enemy. Anybody who's a conservative is is your enemy. Doesn't matter whether they believe in Jesus or not. It doesn't matter whether they're part of the same spiritual body as you. It doesn't matter if, 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 if you're, if you've been made one community by the Holy Spirit. In fact, the reality is if they're, if they're in that camp, they're probably not true believers anyway. 
They, they probably only know the words of the truth. They don't actually know the genuine experience of it. Because if they did, they'd be more like me. They'd be in my camp. Y'all, there is going to be a tension between progressives and conservatives. In the best of times, there's going to be a tension between progressives and conservatives. It's a healthy tension, right? It's a complementary tension. Progressives, by nature, want to progress. They want to move forward into the potential that is in front of them. They want to change. They want to grow. They want to tear down what is holding them back and rebuild what can set them free. Progressives are restless in their moving forward. Conservatives, by nature, want to conserve. They want to protect and preserve what is worth protecting and preserving. They want to cherish what is, what is, what is sacred. Now, these are complementary differences. The tension that results is a healthy tension for both sides. We need each other. Now, are there going to be times that progressives progress too far? That they start demanding change for things that shouldn't be changed? That they start shaking things that shouldn't be shaken? Sometimes... Do conservatives become too entrenched? Protecting what shouldn't be protected. And resisting the change that is necessary to move toward health. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely true. On both sides. Yeah. Progressives can become so committed to change that become anarchists. They just tear everything down. Right? And in fact, that we see that culturally, right? You go far enough out on the left, there are anarchists. And their goal is to sow disruption, to tear it all down, because the only way to progress in their philosophy of life is to destroy everything that is so that you can create something that isn't. They reject all the structures and order and commit themselves to simply tearing it down. And in the process, ironically, they will in fact betray the very ideals that drive them. Those that are committed to changing things to increase tolerance will become increasingly intolerant of those that don't meet their criteria of tolerance. They will create unsafe space for people that don't meet their definition of what a progressive change-oriented person should be. Conservatives can become extremists too. So committed to law and order that they're willing to break the law in order to preserve the order that makes them comfortable and then turn around and justify it and blame it on others. Yes. Sometimes progressives go too far. Yes, sometimes conservatives entrench themselves too solidly. That doesn't mean that progressives or conservatives are the bad guys. 
Because remember, we're all the bad guys. There isn't God, good guys, and bad guys. There's God and bad guys who need to be saved by grace and delivered by love and brought back into the sanity of what life is all about. And because you have tasted the grace of God, it doesn't put you into some separate camp that now you can look down on those that aren't in your camp with you. You are a bad guy redeemed by grace. You are a sinner in need of salvation, but having been given the great gift of salvation through the work of Christ. Listen, y'all, the world doesn't need us exercising the power of the kingdom of man. To try to defeat those who don't look like us or agree with us. Man, the world needs us loving each other. Exercising the power of the kingdom of God. You know, we, we aren't of this world. We're in this world. But as followers of Christ, we are not of this world. We are people of the resurrection. And our country needs us to start exercising the power of that kingdom. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Not by your political affiliation or your ideological convictions. They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And when I look around the world right now, when I look around America right now, there's not very many disciples of Jesus. A lot of people who take his name. A lot of people who wave his banner. A lot of people who, 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 who like to, to wear the cross without actually bearing the cross. Who want the victory of the resurrection without having to walk the path of self-denial and defeat. Who want the power of the fullness of life without embracing the love that unleashes it. If we're going to be a light on a hill, if we're going to be salt and light in in this broken world, we need to exercise the dominion of the kingdom of God instead of exercising the power of the kingdom of man. We need to be willing to do the hard work of tearing down the idols in our own hearts that would lead us to act in line with the kingdom of man as opposed to the kingdom of God. And that's going to require repentance and humility. That's going to require us to stop finding the enemies out there and start identifying the enemies in here. And in the courage of faith to expose those areas of idolatrous weakness and allow the Spirit of God to come in and set us free in His love for us to learn how to love. To make us rich in grace that we might be rich in grace. So let me give you three things, just wrapping up. Three questions that can help you identify how, your how my, your boast, your glory, your joy, is tied to an idol instead of Jesus. How you may be more in line with the kingdom of man than with the kingdom of God. First, do you find your joy and security in keeping what you have and getting more? Simple question. Do you find your joy and your security 
in keeping what you have and getting more. Money, success, academic achievement, approval, followers, likes, political success. You can fill in the blank. The gospel tells us that our joy and our security don't come from anything that's passing away in this world. Right? Our joy and our security, I'll take that as a sign that I need a drink. Our joy and our security come from our justification in Christ. I have peace with God, therefore I have a standing of grace with God. Y'all, my greatest problem's already been solved. My greatest debt's already been paid. My greatest blessing has already been given. That's where I find my significance. That's where I find my security. That's where I find my approval. That's where I find my comfort. Now, I speak in absolute terms. I want you to understand, I don't speak absolutely about me. (laughs) I'm struggling just like everybody else. But it is the gospel that sets me free. It is this incredible love of God that awakens within me a responding love for God. It is the incredible love of God that sets me free to love others, even those that I perceive as my enemies, instead of keeping what I have and getting more and seeing them as enemies to be defeated, but instead see them to be people to be loved. And that's our second question. Do you find that you'd rather fight to defeat your enemy than fight to love them? Honest question. Do you find that you'd rather fight to defeat your enemy than fight to love them? Would you rather silence them? Defeat them? Disempower them? Eliminate them? Kill them? No, 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 not that that far, Steve. It's good enough if I just never see them and they have no power over me. Okay, so kill their presence and influence over you, which often means removing their life. Do you find that you'd rather defeat your enemy than fight to love them? Worldliness compels us to other others, to create circles of inclusion and exclusion. The people who are in here are the good guys, the people out there are the bad guys. The people that are in here are the people of blessing, the people out there are the people uh, that are a threat, right? There's good guys and bad guys. Whether you're trying to own the libs or say it loud enough for the people in the back, You are exercising your power to set people right instead of love people well. Do you see enemies to be defeated or people to be loved? Do you get defensive when people point out your hypocrisy? You do. We all do. Do you find yourself in that moment having a knee-jerk reaction? Yeah, that's bad, but. And following the but is always what the bad things the other people do. Yeah, that's bad but. Which is a, an internal defense mechanism that basically allows us to minimize our own flaws and maximize the flaws of others. Yes, that was bad but. 
And it redirects all the attention on the people that we perceive as our enemies because they're the real problem. If they weren't around, I wouldn't be bad. If they weren't provoking me, I wouldn't be angry. If they weren't doing mean things, I wouldn't be mean in response. Do you find yourself getting defensive? Which is your way of protecting your own sinful impulses instead of exposing them and humbly repenting of them. You know, if you ever start a sentence with, I know that's wrong, but I'm left wondering if you ever really thought it was wrong to begin with. But Steve, there are bad guys in this world. There are bad guys in this world. There are racists. There are people that murder babies. There are people that want to... To, to forcefully restructure society in ways that, that defraud us of what is our due. Yeah, I'm going to tell you all, there's bad guys in this world. You're one of them. And there's a lot of them. There are bad guys. But we don't defeat the bad guys by picking up the implements and the weapons of death. We overcome evil with good. Y'all, the power of love is the only power that can restructure the world into a place of flourishing and fullness of life. Grace is the only power that can recreate the human heart. We take up the power of the kingdom of God because the weakness of the power of man has been exposed for the hypocrisy that it is. Y'all, if we think that love is foolishness, we need to remember, as Paul said, that God loves to use what we consider foolish to demonstrate his wisdom and what we consider to be weakness to demonstrate his strength. Do not underestimate the power of love. Third, would you rather win people to your ideology and political persuasion than to God's love? Do you think the world would be better if people just aligned with you politically and ideologically? Are you seeking to be an evangelist of your political party or your ideological convictions, or are you seeking to be an evangelist of God's love? And you're like, Steve, I want both. (laughs) Nope. Not the way that works. You don't get to add anything to Jesus and still have Jesus. You don't get to add anything to grace and still have grace. Listen, love doesn't demand that people change to be loved. Love doesn't say agree with me in order to be accepted by me. Love says, I love you. Help me understand you. When the Lord returns, no one's going to be asking you about what your ideological and political affiliation was on this earth. It's not going to happen. right? When you meet Simon the Zealot or, 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 or Matthew the tax collector, you're not going to be like, Hey, were you a zealot or a supporter of Rome? That's not going to be a question. Because it's irrelevant to the genuine fullness and flourishing of life. Y'all, this is where Christian nationalism is so ridiculously dangerous. This idea that in order to be a good Christian, you must be a good American. Now, if you are a good Christian, you will be a good American. But, But... this idea that somehow patriotism is, is a form of godliness. That is a, a toxic mixing of the values of the kingdom of God under the guise of the kingdom, the, 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 the power of the kingdom of man under the guise of the 
kingdom of God. I've seen people even teaching that Christians in America are like Israel in Canaan. We live in a hostile and pagan environment and we need to be willing to go to war for what is right and what is good. We need to defeat those pagan Canaanites in order to bring in the fullness of Israel's blessing. Y'all, that is not only bad theology, it's sick. It is a complete misrepresentation of God's historical redemptive work and the power of grace. It is a complete justification of taking up the tools and the weapons of the kingdom of man in the name of the kingdom of God. It blasphemes the very God whom it claims to glorify. Man, Christians get so creative in their hatred of God. We come up with such devilishly clever ways of hiding our sinful impulses and call them sanctified, good, and holy. We are called to exercise the dominion of the kingdom of God. We're called to love. To boldly, self-sacrificially love. To follow the Christ we claim to follow. In taking up the cross in order to pursue the resurrection. To never lose sight of the fact that we are, in fact, people of the resurrection. To not lose sight of the fact that our greatest blessing isn't here right now. Our greatest blessing is going to return with our king when he returns with his kingdom. And it is in keeping that vision sane and right that we will become the citizens of this world that this world needs us to be. People of the light, genuine salt and light. Because in the end, it is the dominion of love that will remake this world so that we can share the fullness and flourishing of life. Now for us to move from our love of the glory of man to truly rejoicing in the glory of God, we're going to have to go through some painful transitions, which is why Paul says we also rejoice in our suffering, but that's where we're going next week. Let me close us in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you that you are an incredibly good and gracious God, that you didn't abandon us to the insanity of our worldliness, our pursuit of the fullness of life in competition with you, as if somehow we could, in fact, become little gods. Even though we have seen generation after generation after generation end up in the same exact place, the end of their story told in the same exact way, as if somehow we could tell it differently. Thank you, Lord, for not despising us in our weakness or rejecting us in our insanity, but instead reaching out to us in love. That in being loved, we might once again be made sane. That in being loved, we might once again learn the richness and the beauty of love. That being loved by you is in fact the greatest treasure this world could, this world could never offer And then being freed in that love to love others is in fact 
true wealth, true significance, and true security. Awaken within us a craving for your glory, for the honor that comes from being created in your image and exercising a dominion that's in line with your kingdom. And awaken within us a courage, a humble courage, to expose the idols of our hearts, that spirit by grace you might tear them down, that we might be set free, that you might be glorified and others might be blessed. We pray this in the name of our King, Jesus. Amen.